Lamb of God, we wait upon you. We want to hear from you. We open your word. Open wide, you tell us. Open wide and you will fill our hearts. Lord, may we do that as we wait before you. Reveal to us, Lord, more about who you are, more about what you've done, that we may worship you aright. And we'll give you thanks and praise for who you are and for what you've done for us and to us and with us and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I have uh, on the pulpit this morning a lamb. And, uh, you know, I, I don't say this word very often, but the only word that can come to my mind that does come to my mind is it's cute. <laughs> and uh, you ought to see uh, Peggy's um, lion that she knitted. <laughs> it's even cuter. <laughs> but as you can tell, we're going to be talking about lambs today, specifically the one lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. As I mentioned last week, we want to do two things in our time in God's word throughout our Christmas season this year. First, we want to tone down the trappings, or should I say, end trappings. In trappings, the decorations that can steal our hearts away from the Lord. You know, we don't want the tinsel and the lights to distract us. Now, certainly there's nothing wrong with tinsel and lights. Would you agree? Some of us have our homes all decked out. Now, we don't want to go crazy, and we don't want to say that all decorations are evil. Look around. But it's like mom and dad, you know, giving their firstborn, now toddler, their very first Christmas present ever. Remember the days of your parents? They spend a lot of money on the present. But what gets the kids' attention? It's the wrapping. It's the box, right? They couldn't care less about the expensive gift. You know, Christmas decorations can sometimes do that. Conceal the gift while we're enamored with the wrappings. And I think the culture has done a really good job at that, don't you? Second, we want to expand our affection for and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, every year we see a small Jesus, baby Jesus. But, you know, sometimes we leave him as a baby in our hearts and our mind's eye long after Christmas is over and we put away our decorations for the year. Sadly, many opt for a Jesus who remains small. A Jesus who is manageable. But we don't want a Jesus that's manageable, do we? Or at least I hope we don't. See, a manageable Jesus sometimes gets stolen. A manageable Jesus can be manipulated. Or so we think. See, a manageable Jesus is not worthy of our trust because he's a figment of our imagination. He's not worthy of our worship. The truth is, Jesus is no longer dressed in swaddling clothes. He's no longer in the manger. He no longer needs to be carried. In fact, sometimes he needs to carry us. So we're using metaphors this year to go beyond the infant and somehow see the Lord Jesus as he is now and thereby give him wholehearted worship. See, Jesus is human and Jesus is deity. 
He's far more than meets the eye. Now imagine, if you will, in the days of Jesus' ministry. See this man. Look into his eyes. Hear his voice. Would you, would I really think that the man that we're looking at, this one that we are standing in front of is eternal? That long before he came through Mary's birth canal, he as the second person of the Trinity was the agent through which everything was created? Pretty tall order we think about him, don't you think? Now, I'm glad for the language of metaphors. Because through metaphors, we can see the exalted Lord Jesus in a far better light than we could otherwise. And so today I want to do a little review of Christ as light before we move on to talk about our metaphor of Christ as lamb. See, because there's a a common touch point between Christ as light and Christ as lamb, and that touch point is life. John 1.4, John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus. John 1 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The light and life which was and is in Jesus, as I mentioned last week, is real life, not just biological existence. See, it's what makes biological existence worth living. See, every good thing that we have, whether it's relationships, the faculties of mind and body, limited though they may be with many of us. Nature, resources, everything that we can appreciate about ourselves and the things around us are all ultimately provided by Christ, the light of the world. And it gets better. See, Christ also offers eternal salvation to all who would turn from their sins and to become reconciled to him. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about Christ as Lord, as King. And it is indeed the King that we need to be reconciled to if eternal life is something that we desire. And we'll talk about more about that next couple of weeks. Now, Christ, who is the light of the world, is the agent through which everything came to be. Christ is the giver of life. And I find it interesting, though, about Christ as the light of the world. As I read John 1, 9, did you see it? Did you catch it? Let me read it again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In him was life. Now, to whom does the light of the world give life? Not mere biological existence. Scripture tells us it's everyone. Every person on the planet. We might be thinking, wait, what are you talking about? What about those in poverty? Or dire circumstances? Or what about those who are really limited in their physical and mental capacities? Do they have life too? Real life? If we believe what the scripture says, and yes, we would have to conclude that yes, Jesus gives life to everyone regardless of the limitation. Now in saying that Christ gives real life to everybody, we also have to acknowledge something else too. See, we live in a severely fallen world, don't we? And this world is getting increasingly wicked. And let's not even begin to talk about the evil that can reside and that does reside in our hearts. What would make a person want to destroy another person? Or what would make one imager of God take advantage of another imager? I just read a report a couple of days ago from Open Doors 
and I, I'm using their app now, and I tell you, it's a great thing. To, it's, it's, it's valuable to put on your phone and to, to read that and look that up. But I read a report about a gruesome murder from the Fulani uh, Muslims of a Christian father and a mother and one of their daughters. When they were doing this, they were shouting out their mantra that I care not to dignify by even repeating here. The other daughter, life-threatening injuries, and she had to witness her family murdered at the hands of these Fulani Muslims. How we need to pray for the Fulani Muslims to turn their lives over to Jesus, be reconciled to him before it's eternally too late for them. But, you know, anybody who has read the book, even in the beginning and the end of the book, knows that we are in the middle of the story. The story did not begin with us, and it will not end with us. It began flawlessly because it began with God, and it will end with Christ on his throne, ruling over a remade earth where sin and pain and sorrow will all be a thing of the past. What a day that's going to be. In him, in Christ, John writes, was life and the life was the light of men. That true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So let's look at this a little bit further. Jesus gives life and light to everyone, not only to those who love him or only to a select few. See, the learned guys and the gals talk about this and they call it prevenient grace. All receive the Lord's blessings, regardless of how one lives their lives, regardless of how they even treat the creator. God still blesses them. And that's such a good thing as I think about it. Because imagine where the world would be and what it would be like if God only gave his good things to those who love him. All of us would be disqualified. God wouldn't give his good gifts to any of us because naturally we live in rebellion against him. Naturally, we don't love God. Paul tells us in Romans 3, 10 through 12, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is our natural, normal state. But Christmas shows us that the Lord still wants us. See, what did Jesus say to an immoral woman in Samaria? John 4, 23 and 24. The hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's indeed a wonderful truth, isn't it? But can you see a problem here? See, I can. In a real sense, it's God who seems to have a problem, as we sometimes understand him. Or is it that we have misunderstood God? How can one who is holy be unholy? Pure beyond pure, the one in whom dwells unapproachable light, he tells Moses, no man can see my face and live, whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. How can that God tolerate sinners, let alone seek sinners? And let me acknowledge here a word that the Lord used in the Father's relationship to sinners, making things even more interesting. Jesus' word was, and that it rested my attention, was that the Father seeks. He seeks. We have a seeking God, one who seeks sinners. Isn't that wonderful? But again, 
He is holy beyond holy. He's pure beyond pure. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil, but he still seeks us. Do you see the issue here? Not only does God tolerate sinners, he seeks them. So what did Jesus mean when he said the Father seeks sinners? One dictionary entry puts it this way. To seek refers to a search for something that is either lost or that is desired. That word carries with it a sense of applied effort toward reaching a specific goal. Now we know the Lord does all things effortlessly. He is all-powerful. See how much power resides in him as he speaks the universe into existence or he raises somebody from the dead. See, Jesus said that the Father seeks worshipers. And as amazing as it sounds, the Father exerts energy toward finding worshipers. So what effort would God the Father expend to find worshipers? To what lengths would God go in his quest to accomplish his task? The short but absolutely profound vital answer is sacrifice. It's through sacrifice. But now though God seeks worshipers from among simple human beings, let's not think for a second that God is okay with sin. I was in a men's group on Friday and we were talking about this very issue, how that God never has ever and ever will expect flawless behavior from his people. Why? Because we're flawed. (laughs) We can't do it, even if we wanted to. But God still hates sin. God does not set aside sin because he's a nice deity. He deals with sin and relates with sinful humanity on the basis of sacrifice. So enter metaphor number two. Christ as lamb. We're in is our first metaphor we saw as Christ, the light of the world, and he's the giver of life. In the second metaphor, we see Christ as God's lamb who died as a sacrifice to give us eternal life, not just life in this life. As we know, Jesus is a man. He's not a sheep. He's not a lamb in the sense four legs and and, and baths, right? And so what does it mean, metaphorically, when the Bible refers to Jesus as a lamb? Like we did last week, I want to briefly talk about what the Scripture says regarding lambs in general and what it means that Jesus is the lamb and finally what it means for us that Jesus is the lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. A physical lamb, of course, is a baby sheep. It's very useful as it grows into adulthood. Sheep are valuable for its wool and for its milk and for its meat. It's also a sign of wealth to have a lot of sheep. Remember Job, if you read read his book lately, or the book that bears his name, he was the greatest man in his time living in his region. And the writer lists his assets, and the top of the list was 7,000 sheep. He was rich, and that's not all he owned, right? A lamb was also associated with sacrifice. Of the 200 or so times that the word lamb was used in Scripture, about 80 of those references are in relation to lambs used as sacrificial animals, designated to appease the Lord because of our sinfulness. And though we can say more about lambs 
in the physical realm, let's turn the corner now and talk about a lamb's symbolic and sacrificial meaning. See, this is where Jesus, as God's lamb, comes in, into play and enters the story. But let me set things up first. As I begin the message, I mentioned that lambs are cute. They represent innocence and helplessness. Lambs, as baby sheep, need to be led and protected because they're vulnerable. And they don't put up a fight when they're killed as a sacrifice. The first time we witness a sacrifice in Scripture is in Genesis 3. You remember that, don't you? Aftermath of that first sin. After Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord with his warning, in the day that you eat the forbidden fruit, it's the day that you're going to die. With that ringing in their ears, they hid from the Lord who was looking for and for his wife. Adam, where are you? So after confessing his sin and Eve confessed her sin, the Lord pronounced curses on them. And then we read of the first death recorded in Scripture, Genesis 3, 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The Lord killed the animals right in front of their eyes in order to cover them. Imagine the horror if you would be Adam and Eve standing there as God is preparing skins for you. Lord, what's that red stuff coming out of the sheep? Blood, you say? Lord, why is this sheep no longer moving? Lord, you took this skin off these animals that you might make coverings for us to cover our shame? Lord, it's not fair to them. Is this what it means to die? Lord, these animals die in our place. And so the Lord introduced his guilty humans to the idea of substitutionary atonement. Fast forward several thousands of years. I'm assuming several thousands of years after the flood and into the into the years of the uh, of the captivity of, of of Israel, the Lord commanded Moses to tell Israel to take a lamb and examine it for a few days, and then kill it. They were to apply the blood of 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 the lamb onto the doorposts of their houses, and when the death angel would see the blood, he would pass over the houses, and the firstborn would be spared. God warned the people the firstborn would be killed, all of them. But in order to spare the life of the firstborn, an innocent animal was substituted, a lamb. The innocent one took place, took the place of the one targeted for death. And after the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt, he gave Moses many detailed instructions regarding sacrifices that he required Israel to make again so that he may be appeased. Let me highlight two of those rules in relation to sacrificing lambs for a sin offering. First, a worshiper had to lay his hands on the head of the lamb, symbolically transferring his sin onto it. The innocent lamb now became guilty. And because the lamb was now guilty, it needed to die. Second, the worshiper himself had to kill the guilty lamb. This was not a job for the priest 
The worshiper had to do it. And so what happens here? The lamb dies. The worshiper goes free. Substitutionary atonement. And the sacrifice became personal. Many centuries later, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the Messiah. Now, one of his mysterious ministries ministries was that he would be a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. Isaiah 53, 6 and 7 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Notice who lays his hands on the lamb as a sacrifice for the nation. It's the Lord. Upon the Messiah, all Israel's sins will be laid. The Messiah dies and Israel goes free. Substitutionary atonement, the sacrifice became national. Now let's push rewind a little bit from that point and see the Lord painting a portrait in living color as a prediction to demonstrate how the Lord himself was going to enact the substitutionary atonement, an innocent one standing in the place of the guilty. In order to do that, Genesis chapter 22, where God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Here's the words. God said to him, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall tell you. How devastating would that be to receive that command? But notice how how he describes his chosen sacrifice. Your son, your only son, Isaac whom you love. But that statement begs the question. Did Abraham have more than one son? Yes. Ishmael was firstborn even. So why this one? Why did he call him this? Why did he describe Isaac as your only son? Literally, it's your unique son. The son of the promise. The Lord gave Isaac to Abraham and Sarah as a result of a promise. It was this son that the Lord commanded Abraham to sacrifice. And we know the story, don't we? Abraham takes his unique son to the top of the mountain. Abraham builds an altar and places his son on it. And his son submits to this. No turning back. And at the last second, he hears the sweetest sound he could ever hear. Abraham, don't touch the boy. The boy is destined sacrifice. But what did Abraham find? The Lord provided a ram in his place. Now hold that thought because we're going to see a picture just like this in a bit. But with all that said, Jesus now comes onto the world stage as we fast forward. The night night he was born, the heavenly host makes an announcement to whom? To shepherds. Though they were absolutely terrified, wouldn't you be if you were a shepherd hearing this and seeing this? They hear this message in Luke 2, 10 to 12. Fear not, they said, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ 
the Lord, the Messiah. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. You think the shepherds kind of understood that kind of talk? Absolutely. See, when the shepherds somewhat recovered from their shock, what'd they say? Let's go see this thing that has happened. And in verse 16, it says, they went with haste and they found the baby lying in the manger. Question is, how did they know where to look? The short answer, there was only one place that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus could have been in their world. And the place, according to researchers, was a place called the Tower of the Flock. This is where the temple lambs were birthed. But how significant is this? God's son, the savior of the world, was the fulfillment of the father's promise to send his Messiah, Christ the Lord. The angel told the shepherds to go see him. They would know that he was the Christ by wearing swaddling cloths. And they would know where his that he was the one because of where his mother had placed him in a manger. How apropos that the angels would announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. See, of all the people, they were the ones most likely to connect the dots with sacrifice. God's Messiah was destined for sacrifice. These so-called temple shepherds knew the scripture to include Isaiah's prophecy, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Three decades later, John the Baptist makes an earth-shattering announcement when he sees Jesus. He points him out, and he says in John 1.29, Look, behold, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now the sacrifice of God was not only personal, not only national, but now universal. Jesus will take away the sin of the entire world. Three short years after that proclamation, we find Jesus nailed to a cross. Beyond recognition, he was beaten, battered, but there he was, somehow able to speak. But he was there right on schedule. Three o'clock in the afternoon, ninth hour of the day, because it was at the ninth hour, the high priest would offer an unblemished lamb for the sins of Israel. But God was offering an unblemished lamb for the sins of the world. Upon Christ, the Father placed all sin of all humanity for all time upon the shoulders and into the heart of his Son, the Lamb of God. And unlike Abraham, who was stopped short of offering his only unique son, the Father didn't stop short. And right before the Lamb of God, Messiah Jesus died, he cried out, Tetelestai, finished, paid in full, full payment for all sin, for all time. And then Luke records this final words, these final words of Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not only was the sin debt paid for, the job was done. The Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, now dead, was taken down from the cross. He was placed in a tomb. That's where dead people go, you know. But he would only need that tomb 
for three days. The Lamb of God rose again, conqueror over death itself, the most powerful enemy ever. The Lamb of God is now alive, never to die again. Hallelujah. So what do we have here? As the light of the world, Jesus gives real life in this life. As the Lamb of God, Jesus gave his life so that he might offer eternal life to all who would be reconciled to him. And if that doesn't make us fall down and worship and wonder, I don't know what does. So what does this mean for all people that Christ is the Lamb? First, Christ paid for every sin of every person for eternity. John the Baptist said that Jesus takes away the sin of the world. John the Apostle said that Christ died not only for our sins as Christians, but also for the sins of everybody. Peter declared that Jesus, as the master, even bought false teachers. And he bought them with his blood. So here's what this means for every person who has ever lived. Christ bought and paid for every person by his forever sacrifice. Indeed, the nations are his inheritance. Isn't that right? And that means the Lord Jesus, because he owns all of us, can do whatever he wants with any of us and with all of us. Because he owns us. And because he owns us, the Lord has options. He could throw every one of us into a fiery hell, and he would be perfectly justified in doing so. Or, on the opposite end, he could take every one of us to heaven. I die for everybody's sins, so y'all come. But he doesn't do that either way. Those extremes are not, are not what he does. See, he treats each one of us with amazing dignity. He gives us the choice, a real choice that we make concerning him. Marvelously, mercifully, he provided eternal salvation to all who would repent of their sin and embrace the good news of Christ and the Christ of the good news. Isn't that wonderful? And the fact that Christ paid for all sin, even of those who live in rebellion, that will make the judgment that much more horrible upon them. On that day, they will be reminded that their judge died for them and they refused him. Can you imagine standing there, then suddenly realizing that truth come upon you? What would that be like? Words would not be able to describe the horror of that day upon that person. But for those of us who've been reconciled to the Lord because of his marvelous grace and his mercy, we've been set free of sin. We've been set free. Revelation 1.5, John writes this. He says that Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, he has loved us and he has set us free from our sins by his blood. Amen. Amazing thing. My brothers and sisters, think of the implications of this, not just for eternity, but for right now. Since Christ's death completely paid for all sins, how many sins can prevent us from enjoying eternal life with him? How about none? But why wait to enjoy the real life that Christ offers us, eternal life? 
For now, in this life, let's consider what freedom from sin means. That there is no sin that cannot be overcome by his strength. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Think of the sins that you as a Christian struggle with right now. Let me name some. Lustful thoughts. Simple attitudes whenever you feel that your rights have been violated. How about your tongue and the words that you use? I can keep going, but I'll stop. Aren't you glad I'm doing that? The glorious truth, though, is that we are set free from our sins. And there's a twofold truth we want to talk about. First, victory over sin is possible. Amen? John writes in 1 John 2, verse 1, and this is truth, my friends. This is truth. Listen to this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if, not when, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Second, the Christian life is no longer about sin management. See, we never have to ask the Lord whether he completely accepts us. Why? Because Christ died for how many of your sins? All of them. See, Christ is a Lamb of God, paid for every sin. Listen to Paul's triumphant words found in Romans 3.26. It was to show Christ uh, and his sacrifice and, and everything that went with it. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wonderful words. In short, God has declared us to be righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. No son or daughter of God has to worry about whether the Lord has accepted or will continue to accept him or her. All sins have been taken care of. And because the Lamb of God is now taking care of all of our sin, it is now our privilege to faithfully, loyally follow the Lord out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. He has set us free from sin. It's not about managing sin anymore. It's about living in the freedom that we don't have to sin. But now, some people may be asking, if we don't have to worry about managing our sin, then what is our incentive to not sin? Well, simply put, in one very real sense, sin is not about us. Sin offends God. That's the issue. Sin offends him. And we want to do everything as followers of Christ, of people who claim to love God. We want to do everything we can to avoid sinning against the one in whom we have a love relationship. Remember Jesus' words in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. This word so means this is how he loved the world. He loved the world like this, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What motivated the Father to send the Son to be his Lamb in order that he might take away our sins? His love. And because he took away our sin, what ought to be our motivation in response? It'd be love. It's a love relationship here. Now, we might be thinking, you know, Pastor, that's all well and good as far as ideal circumstances, but we live in the real world, don't we? See, I'm too weak to avoid sin. I sin all the time, is what we say. But let me give all of us, as one person calls it, 
some strong medicine. As Christians, why do we still sin? Painful answer is, we love to sin. Just the way it is, isn't it? Even Scripture tells us that sin is pleasurable. Pleasurable for a time, though. Let's be brutally honest with ourselves, shall we? In every sin, there is an element of pleasure. True? If there was absolutely no element of sin, or no element of pleasure in sin, would we do it? Absolutely not. There is something that entices us about sin. That's why it draws us. That's why James says we are drawn into sin because of our own lusts, our own desires. But we protest. Certainly, I hate sin. I don't want to sin. I don't. Well, we hate the effects of sin. But when we're in the act of sin, it brings us pleasure in whatever that sin might be. In the words of one of my mentors, Brian Chapel, we sin because we love it. Our task then, Brian Chapel says, is that we need to replace our love for sinning with a higher love. We need to cultivate a greater pleasure, a greater love from serving Christ, God's Lamb, than we do to loving sin. How do we do that? Is there a magic formula with this? No. It's called cultivating a relationship. Cultivating a relationship. We are going to take the time to do what we really want to do. See, there's only one way to love the Lord more than to love sin. We need to choose to cultivate our relationship with him. Let's make the choice to put us in a position to know him better. Let's learn to love the lamb. You know, right before Jesus went to the cross, he told his disciples what gave him great joy. Would you like to know what gave him great joy? Surely we would want to know what would give Jesus great joy, and we would want that for ourselves, wouldn't we? John 15, 9 through 11, here's what Jesus said. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If that's all he would say, we would want to say, Lord, continue. Help us to know what it means to abide in your love. He tells him, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What's the secret to Jesus' joy? Keeping the Father's commandments. Do you see this? You see it? He received joy from obeying the Father's commandments. And the Lord Jesus is offering us his kind of joy as well. We get Jesus' kind of joy by living our lives the same way Jesus lived his life. For Jesus, he experienced real life one way and one way only, keeping the Father's commandments. So I bring, as I bring this message to a close, we come full circle. See, the Father spared no expense in seeking simple humanity to be his worshipers. He sent Jesus to make that possible. And the light of the world became the Lamb of God 
He is the one through whom all creation received life in this life. And he became, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who would become reconciled to him. So let's fall down at his feet in worship. The father is still seeking worshipers as his sons and daughters who have been reconciled to Christ through repentance and faith in him. May our lives reflect profound gratitude. May we, as it were, take the Lord Jesus upon his offer to experience his kind of joy. Again, as the father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Truly, the light of the world has given us real life in the here and now and eternal life in the hereafter. Let's show him that we are grateful for freeing us from sin now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we are profoundly grateful, and even that doesn't do it justice. We are profoundly grateful for sending, for you sending us your gift of love, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the lamb slain for us, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Lord, we live in this world and we're so tainted. Lord, help us, please, to really, with, the, with, the, with all that's within us, to know and to trust and to cling to the truth that, Lord Jesus, you, by your death, because you are the sacrifice, you have freed us from our sins, now and forever. Or may we no longer make excuses for our sins. Or may we love you more than we love our sin. May we cultivate, may we take the time, may we make the choices to cultivate our love relationship with you. Father, you took the time. You took the time to send your son to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. May we praise you with our lives. May we understand what it means to experience joy. And Lord, if we have a problem with obeying your commands, I pray, Lord, that you help us overcome that problem. It really is a matter of choice. It's a matter of where we're placing our affections. Help us, Lord, to place our affections upon obedience to you. Because, Lord Jesus, that's where you derive your joy. May we derive our joy in the same way that you did. And now, Father, I pray that as we turn our attention to a couple more acts of worship, may they truly be acts of worship in our giving, also in our singing. Lord, may, the, may these sacrifices, may these acts of worship be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name.